What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 117 of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, what's going on, man? Nothing much, man. It feels like fall outside. It's amazing. Down here in the south, at least. Yes, it's amazing. I've uh, been waiting for this moment for the last, I don't know, six months. Six months? <laughs> yeah, it's been brutally hot. Saw a meme and... Um, it was listing like the 12 seasons of South Carolina and where we are right now. It was like, you are here, false fall. And then it was like second summer and then actual fall. I know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that feels about right. I'm hoping it doesn't start getting super hot again. It's going to get back in the 80s, but I mean, yeah, 80s are nice. Man. I can deal with 80s. I can do 80s. I'm not a fan of the 110 heat no, index. We don't like that. Yeah. Especially when you need to wear a long sleeve, like button up to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. And a long coat or whatever. Well, you don't really wear a coat, but I have to wear a coat. My chair, my chair wears my coat <laughs> yeah. most of the time. He rocks it really well. But uh, yeah, man. So today we are going to kind of continue on our women's health uh, topics that we had started a little bit ago. And uh, we're going to go through a couple more of those, just some quick reviews. So today we'll cover uh, PCOS, Mm -hmm. um, dysmenorrhea. And then looking at uh, like some PMS, uh, PMDD, and just kind of summarize those. So we'll touch on all of them. Obviously, we won't go super in depth with all three, but we'll kind of go through them so that we can, you know, get some background information and then we can go back through them later on more in depth. (laughs) Right. Um, So, yeah, we're actually going to finish something we said we started. So this is good. Well, you didn't do it in the following episode, but two episodes later, I think that's a pretty good timeline. Yeah, it's better than we've done before. I think so. I think we talked, I think we did like hypothyroidism and I don't even know if we ever finished with hyperthyroidism. I'm going to have to look. Yeah, I have no clue. we should I if don't we remember. Didn't. I don't recall either. <laughs> but yeah, we're actually going to do it. So PCOS first today and PCOS can be a big topic, especially if you get into um, infertility and some of the new data that's come out with that. So we're not going to go too in depth on that today, but I have a feeling we'll follow up with that at some point. So for today, we're just going to give a, an overview of what it is um, and some, some treatments and lifestyle modifications um, that can be done to mitigate the problems with it. Uh, so PCOS is polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, it's in reproductive age women. It's one of the most common causes of abnormal uterine bleeding um, associated with ovulatory dysfunction. So going along with the uh, um, heavy menstrual bleeding and the amenorrhea that we did in the previous episode, and then the dysmenorrhea and the um, PMS that we'll go through today. Uh, so symptoms could be amenorrhea. So we can't, we listed it as one of those causes of amenorrhea, um, oligomenorrhea, which would be um, overly frequent um, menstrual cycles, like if it's not following that 21 to 35 day range and they're happening too often, um, intermenstrual bleeding and heavy menstrual bleeding, which we went through in the last uh, podcast. PCOS can be associated with all those. Um, it's a disorder of androgen excess. Um, it's accompanied by ovulatory dysfunction and or polycystic ovarian morphology. Uh, So this will be more evident when we talk about some things that you'll see in someone who has PCOS, but it's definitely not an uncommon um, syndrome. And um, you probably know somebody who who have had it. Uh, It's often accompanied by insulin resistance um, because it's sometimes associated with um, obesity or um, a patient who's overweight. So risk factors would be metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, uh, dyslipidemia, and hypertension as well. 
So you mentioned some of the symptoms, um, like the uh, absence of menses, but some of the signs also, because because we're dealing with a um, androgen excess, some of those androgenic type signs and symptoms also will show up. So besides obesity, we got to think about things like acne, um, excessive hair growth, and some of those other just androgenic, like classic androgenic um, effects. So for instance, like with, with acne, androgen we know is anything with an androgenic activity, whether it's testosterone or um, anything else, is going to increase sebum production. So the, the increased sebum production, you have a better chance of kind of clogging one of those hair follicles, um, giving the, if it's, if it's acne, um, bacteria caused acne, then you're going to have more sebum for that to kind of live on and um, better chance of kind of having that uh, follicular um, keratinization mm-hmm. rupture, if you will. I think that's the right terminology. But, Sounds uh, right to me. But um, so, you know, it's that excess of oily skin kind of thing. So y- there's there's lots of different ways that this can kind of manifest, but acne is a, a big one, especially for this is usually in our, you know, younger, I say younger, you know, 20, 30 year old patients. Obviously, they don't want to be having acne breakouts and breaks, you know, excessive hair growth and things like that. Pretty much things that a teenage boy goes through, but uh, is unfortunately happening in a, um, not necessarily teenage, uh, female. So you mentioned increased hair growth, possibly usually coarser hair, um, than what uh, might've been normal. Um, as well as what, uh, unfortunately many uh, men have to deal with. You can have hair loss as well. So Mm -hmm. you might have balding, um, on the head, um, possible alopecia. So, not ideal. So symptoms that people definitely do not want. Um, so we, we have some ways that we can mitigate that. So from taking a lab, you know, standpoint, we would want to do a pregnancy test, especially if they're presenting with things like amenorrhea, we would always start with the pregnancy test, make sure that patient's not pregnant. Um, and then we would want to draw like a free and total testosterone level, fasting glucose, lipid panel, TSH, um, some an estrogen level, things like that, that we would to kind of get a picture of, of what's going on. Um, and then any other, you know, random CMP, things like that. Yeah. But all um, the random labs. Yeah. The, the standard labs that we typically get. So that gives us a little bit better idea of kind of, especially if the, the steroids seem to be a little, the steroid hormones seem to be a little out of whack. Mm-hmm. That's um, leading us more to kind of thinking PCOS. Yep. So as far as treatments, um, first, you're obviously going to address lifestyle modifications. So um, not all patients, uh, obesity is not necessarily in all patients, but for patients who are obese, weight loss of 5 to 10% may result in improved menstrual regularity and ovulatory function. So that's something to discuss with patients um, if you feel like they're having these symptoms at the outset, possibly before you uh, start one of the therapies. It's also associated with reduced hirsutism and the symptoms of that, increased insulin sensitivity um, in general, even for people without PCOS, and uh, improve response to fertility treatments. So I mentioned uh, PCOS can uh, be a cause for infertility, and sometimes weight loss can uh, aid with that. So as far as drug therapy, um, the combined hormonal contraceptive is going to be the first-line treatment. Uh, It's going to be an estrogen plus a progestin. Um, It increases sex hormone binding globulin 
which binds androgens and reduces their circulating free concentration. So it's going to reduce your overall androgen concentration. Um, and, you know, people will say help regulate uh, menstruation or whatever they want to say, but decrease androgen concentration, which is going to overall help with the, the side effects that you're going to have from the, the hirsutism um, and PCOS in general. Uh, so the selected um, contraceptive should contain less than or equal uh, to 35 micrograms of the estrogen, the ethanol estradiol, and it should contain a progesterone that exhibits minimal androgenic side effects. So some uh, progestins can be more androgenic than others. So one with um, minimal side effects would be like norgestimate or desogestrel, um, or one that can even be anti-androgenic like drospirinone. So, and one of the things to keep in mind with just Drospirinone in particular is, and if you remember, we talked about contraception way back several episodes ago, yep. and we mentioned that uh, if the patient is having like bloating and things like that associated with their menstrual cycle, that making sure that you're switching them to a Drospirinone containing oral contraceptive. And the reason for that is it's got almost like a potassium sparing diuretic effect. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of get rid of some of that excess fluid but you are retaining potassium. So one of the risks of using your spironone would be hyperkalemia. So most likely not going to be a huge issue, especially on a normally otherwise healthy patient, but something to just keep in mind because you may not be thinking along those lines um, when you're talking about oral contraceptives, but watch that potassium level. Right. Yeah. I, I think I do recall you saying that. So yeah, we did go over that in the, um, the oral contraceptive episode. Um, so as far as some brand names, so obviously with uh, birth controls, there's a lot of names and a lot of long names and a lot of different doses, and it's really easy to get them mixed up and confused. So um, brand names are usually a little easier to deal with, um, but even still, there's a lot of them. So um, as far as appropriate options, the orthocycline and the orthotricycline would be good. Um, they both have ethanol estradiol as the estrogen and norgestimate as the progesterone. Um, there's also reclipsin, which is um, estrogen plus desogestrel with ethanol estradiol. Uh, there's Yasmin and Yaz, which you've probably uh, been familiar with. Uh, probably heard of those brand names, but it's also ethanol estradiol with drospirinone. So that's where you would want to monitor the uh, potassium function, Yasmin or Yaz. So the other thing that we always think about when it comes to PCOS is metformin use. So that's been something that has been considered as a treatment option in uh, women and adolescents for uh, PCOS management when it comes to the metabolic features. So the insulin resistance um, and all that. And so, you know, we always want to start with lifestyle changes and we still typically want to use an, a contraception, uh, hormonal contraception first. That's a combo. Um, but if that is still, you know, there's further issues happening. So there's more, um, still having some of those androgenic side effects. So like the alopecia or excessive hair growth or anything like that, um, then you can consider, uh, metformin as like an add on to the oral contraceptive. So because metformin we know improves that insulin sensitivity, um, that's ob an obvious reason for it when it comes to like the metabolic syndrome. But the thing we don't really ever talk about is that metformin can also help to kind of reduce the circulating androgen concentrations right. um, and improve like ovulation rates as well. So it's kind of like a another mechanism of action that obviously it would play a better role here um, on top of making the patient more sensitive to their insulin. Right. 
So um, there was a 2018 international PCOS guidelines, and that's kind of what the recommendation for metformin was, that it can be used in combination with a combined hormonal contraception um, when it comes to the treatment of hyperandrogenic-related uh, adverse effects. And if the patient has done at least six months of the combo hormonal contraceptive and you know if they've tried their cosmetic therapy or something like that and it's not working they're not happy with the results then adding on the metformin after that right now not everyone's going to wait six months i'm sure but uh, especially if they're worried about you know, metabolic syndrome and some of those things so but that's just what the international guidelines kind of came up with Right. Because not only do we want to get rid of the um, unwanted side effects, we want to prevent other comorbidities from developing like metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Um, so speaking of metformin, you've heard of metformin um, being used in PCOS probably and even being used for um, fertility. So there's some some new data that's come out as far as infertility with PCOS. Um, some of it questions the efficacy of metformin. Uh, we're not going to go too far in depth on that today, but I'll just mention some of the drugs that can be used for infertility um, in PCOS. Metformin in particular, um, you know, they they see increased pregnancy rates, but not necessarily an increase in live birth rate. Um, so while it, it seems good, if you're not actually able to have live sustainable births um, at an increased rate, then is it necessarily helping? So that's some of the stuff they've looked at. Uh, but they've also used clomiphene, uh, letrozole, excuse me, clomiphene and letrozole, as well as um, gonadotropins, injectable gonadotropins, all for um, infertility and PCOS. Uh, they'll also use um, in vitro fertilization and there's other procedures they can do, but those are kind of the three main uh, drugs that you will see. There's actually a really good, um, it's, it's one of those recurring live CEs that they have on freece.com mm -hmm. if you guys, for any of you who are members of that website. And they have a really good talk on infertility where the pharmacist works in women's health and she goes through like in detail, all the different options for in vitro and some of the different gonadotropin analogs and things like that. It's, right. it's really good. So I definitely encourage you to check that out if you need some CEs coming up. Nice. Yeah, actually, um, for the pharmacists who decided to push their licensing back because of the pandemic, at least in South Carolina, it was pushed back to September 30th. So coming up on that deadline, if you decided to wait. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to renew my license here in a couple of days because <laughs> yeah. I was um, one of those pharmacists for sure. Though I do all my CE online, so I don't, you know, I guess maybe it was for people who uh, couldn't go to live CEs in person. Possibly they just pushed it back, but yeah, pushed back like, you know, six months, three months, six months, six mm -hmm. months. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's normally in April, normally in April coming up in a few days. So yeah, I, and I had this good strategy where all the live events that I went to, mm -hmm. I just didn't record any of them to get credit for. <laughs> oh, nice. So yeah, I had to go back and like watch live CDs, even though I've been to all multiple things. conferences and yeah. And I just didn't record any of my things cause I'm lazy and then it, yeah. it runs out. Yeah. So it's been, it's been great. Anything else for PCUS? That's the big stuff. Quick and dirty. Cool. Um, dysmenorrhea. Yes. Go through that. Yeah, let's do it. So that's going to be, you know, kind of broadly defined as pelvic pain and cramping during, um, during or prior, just prior to menses. Mm -hmm. So it can kind of be broken up into primary and secondary dysmenorrhea with primary being pain in the setting of normal 
pelvic anatomy and normal physiology. And, you know, we know that there's an increased release of prostaglandins, leukotrienes, um, some of those, you know, the costanoids that deal with inflammation. So, and that can happen, they get released into the menstrual fluid and initiating that inflammatory response. And then they can have more like vasopressin mediated vasoconstriction, which then can cause pain. And secondary dysmenorrhea is more when there's actually an underlying pelvic um, pathology that's, you know, around the anatomy or, you know, something along those lines where there's an issue. Um, and that should be suspected in women over 30 years of age without a history of dysmenorrhea. Um, and also making sure you're looking for other, you know, causes or underlying causes of endometriosis. Um, does a patient have pelvic inflammatory disease, uterine fibroids, things like that. Um, but this can be very common thing that, that women can experience. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some statistics, they say as little as 16%, but there's others that talk about it up to 90% of women will experience this some way, shape or form, um, in their life. So it's, it's a lot and it's something patients should definitely be aware of as far as the treatments. And sometimes it can be bad enough to where it interferes with, you know, work or school attendance and just overall lowers that quality of life because it's something you're having to deal with every month and, you know, taking you out of commission for a few days. That's, yeah. No one's wanting to deal with that. No, not at all. So it yeah, definitely significantly affects quality of life. Um, so let's, I'll just walk you quickly through um, what our options are as far as pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions. Um, so if we decide that dysmenorrhea is present, um, first you would want to start with a non-pharmacologic therapy such as topical heat um it's actually shown to be reasonably effective um you know hard to hard to say for sure but it's been shown to be reasonably effective so you can try that at first if it's not working then you might start a monthly NSAID regimen uh beginning at the time of symptom onset so not necessarily tylenol we mentioned the um, inflammatory prostaglandins and things like that which is why it makes sense that an NSAID would be effective so you can do a monthly NSAID regimen um right when the symptoms start and to hopefully mitigate those symptoms. If that's working, keep going with that. Or if heat was working, you could keep going with that too. Um, if not, then you move on to the oral contraceptives. So we went through them uh, a little bit in PCOS, um, but you can do that for two to three cycles and see if it's also helping. Uh, if so, continue that. But if not, um, you would need to consider other options like uh, injectable medroxyprogesterone um, or even um, IUD devices with levonorgestrel. So kind of talking about NSAIDs real quick, if you do decide to initiate those as kind of a, a trial, um, they should be started one to two days prior to the onset of menses and then continued through the first two to three days of menstrual bleeding. Um, they've actually, just like Cole said, they've actually done studies that show acetaminophen is inferior to NSAID. So it makes complete sense from a physiology standpoint and they have data showing that. Um, there's NSAIDs that I haven't seen any good data that shows a specific NSAID. Um, a lot of times they'll go with naproxen, mm -hmm. double strength, um, so like the 550 milligrams twice a day and um, or something along those lines just to hopefully seems to be a little bit better uh, on the, the tolerate in the stomach and things like that. Um, and then from a hormonal contraceptive standpoint, like an oral uh, contraceptive standpoint, there is one study that suggests um, levonorgestrel being because it's a potent progestin um, may be more beneficial than other 
combo hormonal contraceptives. So just like, you know, that's with that being an option for like IUDs and things like that, um, that does seem to be one that would be a good option to start with if possible. Um, if you're doing the oral route first. Um, and then the other thing would be, um, looking at, uh, continuous versus cyclic regimens. So a lot of these, um, birth control options will have placebos or iron tablets or whatever it may be. Um, you know, the last anywhere from four to seven days of the pack. Um, so they've, they've looked at some studies where, and it's not super clear, but there's some evidence that shows that continuous, um, contraception use may result in a more rapid pain reduction. Okay. So one option would be something like the seasonique. It contains 30 micrograms of ethanol estradiol and then um, 0.15 milligrams of the levonorgestrel. And that's 84 tablets. And then there's a seven placebo tablets. Right. So you do like the three months worth and then um, have a menstrual cycle and then continue on from there. Right. So that that's a little bit to give you a little bit more detail. Again, um, not super definitive data. So it's not like if you can't get them on season eight that they can't use something else, but that's just what the limited data that we have says. Yep. And I meant to mention with the non-pharmacologic treatment, so the uh, heat patches, uh, they have been shown to be as effective as taking 400 milligrams of ibuprofen three times a day, um, which is why it actually pops into the guidelines as one of the non-pharmacologic options. Uh, they've looked at other things. There was a... Um, a, anal a meta-analysis done back in 2016 looking at uh, other non-pharmacologic stuff like fish oil, vitamin B1, ginger, valerian, zinc, fenugreek, um, even acupuncture and acupressure. Um, all of those were, uh, well, they say supported with a with a low or very low quality of evidence, but um, essentially not recommended. But, you know, I mean, if they're safe and it feels like it works for you then that's fine. But it doesn't look like it's necessarily significantly beneficial versus the topical heat. Right. And, um, the, the, the you did mention the, um, IUD devices. So Marina, Skyla, any of those, um, levonorgestrel IUDs are also another option. And then medoxyprogesterone injection. So that the deeper Provera would be another one. And those are kind of indicated like Cole said, if the patients tried two or three cycles of, the oral contraceptive that's not working and then you can switch to that um, unless the, obviously the patient has an issue with oral contraception or some kind of contraindication or something like that um, but uh, the other thing is um, because especially with things like the IUD or, or spe and specifically like the medoxyprogesterone over time when it comes to like 6 to 12 months of their continuous use some patients may um, kind of become amenorrheic mm -hmm. so kind of warning patients about that and you know letting them know but also getting pregnancy tests if they come in and they do talk about that so that they're not staying on the these birth controls right and with these i mean that's part of their efficacy because you know you're not necessarily going to be dysmenorrheic if there's no menorrhea exactly right yeah anything else on those i don't think so man we're cranking through these things see it's, it's best for us to get all the women's health topics out all at once um that way there's less of a chance for us to say something really stupid <laughs> although the it's chances are still going to happen. We'll say it's medium. But imagine if we spread it out over six podcast episodes. Yeah. So many opportunities for stupidity. That's true. That's so a good point. We do three at once. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. 
Um, so we're moving on to uh, premenstrual syndrome, PMS, and also premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. So what we got on those. So when it comes to, we'll start with PMS. So premenstrual syndrome, we're talking about, um, you know, cyclic patterns of symptoms occurring in the last week of the the menstrual cycle um, that resolve when you know when when the actual menstrual flow begins. So diagnosis um, requires typically at least one moderate to severe, either somatic or psychiatric symptom. Um, and that has to be present in the last week of the luteal phase and has to be present for the last three months. So pretty specific. Yeah. So I give you a couple examples. So somatic symptoms, we have things like abdominal bloating, um, breast swelling or tenderness, headache, muscle or joint pain, uh, swelling of extremities, weight gain, those types of things that would be somatic. Um, now our psychiatric or affective symptoms would be things like, uh, angry outbursts, um, anxiety, depression, difficulty with things like concentration, confusion, irritability, even social withdrawal, any of those, those would be more of like on the psychiatric or they also refer to as effective symptoms to kind of watch out for. So any one of either of those symptoms and that has to be present for that last week um, and then also has to be present for three months in a row prior to the appointment kind of thing before yeah. you can call it that. So just one. I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. a pretty easy. Right. I mean, it's pretty easy. Headache. I mean, come on. Headache once for three months. Get, so it's pretty easy to get this this diagnosis. Um, so the the PMDD is a little bit different. So some people have that um, and it's only different in that it's more severe. So it's the same exact symptoms. So it's diagnosed with the same exact symptoms that Mike just listed. You just have to have five of those. So at least five symptoms are present in the last week prior to the onset of menses. So similar to PMS um, and the majority of menstrual cycles and these symptoms improve within a few days after the onset of menses. Um, so they want to make sure that it's associated with menses and not some another underlying disorder. Um, so they can't be attributable to uh, substance abuse or another psychiatric disorder. Um, and must affect the patient's normal daily functioning. So five of those symptoms. And one one of them has to be yes. an effective symptom. Yes. So not just the somatic one it does have to be an effective symptom uh, to be able to make that diagnosis. So, and and like Cole said, that, that's the hard part is making sure you're getting a full kind of patient history to make sure there's not underlying depression or something else going on that could be confused with that if right. you're going to make that diagnosis. Exactly. So non-pharmacological treatment. So some, just some lifestyle modifications, um, certain things that you can kind of encourage the patient to do would be to minimize the intake of caffeine, um, refined sugar, um, decreasing sodium intake, and then increasing, you know, exercise and physical activity like that. Um, there some evidence that shows um, certain vitamins can help. So there's things like vitamin B6, um, calcium carbonate may help to reduce some of the physical symptoms, but not great data there. And then one other thing that can help uh, that we always think about when it comes to like behavioral health is um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So this not being a true behavioral health topic necessarily, we may kind of think about that, but there is studies that have shown that cognitive behavioral therapy when it comes to PMDD have actually been been somewhat effective. Um, but as far as like 
the frequency of how often they have to have those cognitive behavioral sessions or how long they should do those for it. Right. Those have never really been defined. The studies have used different. You know, I don't know too much about CBT. Do they use, I mean, I, I, I guess I know that they use different, different, um, regimens, I guess, depending on what's going on, right? Like they give them certain things based on what they're having. I wonder, I wonder who comes up with those. I'm sure I could look into that, right? Yeah. I, so I've talked to some counselors that do CBT, but I've, I've never sat in on like one of the sessions. Yeah. So yeah. We'd have to bring in somebody to educate us. Yeah. That'd, that'd be, be a good, good topic. That'd be a good topic. Yeah. Cause everybody's like, yeah, do CBT. It's the best thing to do, but we're not going to tell you anything else about it. You just yeah. gotta, you just gotta do CBT, um, and then move on to drugs. Cause you know, cause that's more, it's like, know. it's one of those diet and exercise things like, oh yeah, CBT. Now here's your drugs. Right. Here's your drugs. Um, so that's non-pharmacologic as far as prescription options. Um, SSRIs are actually first line. So we've gone over SSRIs a lot in previous podcasts, but I'll just list some for you. Uh, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Celexa, and Lexapro. Uh, we've talked about side effects to be aware of, which, um, include, but are not limited to, um, sexual dysfunction, weight gain. Um, there is a discontinuation syndrome possibly associated, um, um, the I'm trying to think of the serotonin syndrome and, um, there's obviously other, uh, things to be aware of when initiating like possible increases in anxiety and, um, stomach upset when you're starting. So things like that, that would be important to, um, counsel a patient on, especially if they're younger. Um, they've looked at dosing these either continuously for a patient or, um, only during the luteal phase, um, uh, prior to menses and it's illustrated similar efficacy between those two regimens, uh, decreased libido, which occurs at a higher rate, uh, with the continuous dosing. So I mentioned the sexual dysfunction. Um, so it would be less if you just did it during that luteal phase. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is, you know, you mentioned discontinuation syndrome, but one of the reasons why they, they test, you know, the continue continuous or just during the, um, luteal luteal phase. phase is because and the thought is that the drugs are not getting to a high enough concentration for long enough to where you actually get the symptoms of discontinuation syndrome. I was wondering about that. So yeah, that I, I guess because it's just like a, a few days time, if not a week, yeah, it just doesn't get to steady state and you don't have the, you don't have that. That's the, the thought process. Now there is argument, some argument against that. And I can so imagine. There, there's, I know some um, providers will prefer fluoxetine specifically. Long half-life. So, yeah. And so fluoxetine, one of the active metabolites of it, so norfloxetine, has a half-life of around seven to nine days. It's very long. So it's got like this built-in safe um, or self-taper that it, it can do. So that one, you're never worried about discontinuation syndrome for the most part. And so we really wouldn't have to worry about it here. The only issue is there was a, a large-scale uh, meta-analysis that showed potential birth defects, um, whether it was atrial septal defects, um, right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, um, and a couple other things that they mentioned can, and again, this is direct from the study saying that it can be two to 3.5 times more frequent when in patients who are using paroxetine or fluoxetine, um, in early pregnancy. Yeah. That being said, if the patient's not trying to become pregnant using contraception as an IUD, then it's obviously not going to be a big deal. But if the patient is actively trying to become pregnant, then and they're on these medications, I personally would think it's a better option to go with like sertraline or citalopram or escitalopram. And 
you know, see how they do with either the the cyclic or the uh, continuous dosing of it. Yeah, I would say so. And to me, this is just another in a plethora of reasons not to use Paxil, even though it's still used all the time. Mm-hmm. There's just better options. Um, but yeah, I mean, even, even if they're not actively trying any woman with um, who is uh, able to become pregnant, so they're of, of um, childbearing age, which would be anyone having these types of symptoms, something to be aware of and at least something to, to warn them about. Right. Um, so yeah. Zoloft, Celexa, Lexapro are the options. So that's SSRIs. So there is an SNRI um, that you can possibly use that has shown some benefit, um, and that's Effexor, venlafaxine. Um, So results in a 50% or greater improvement in symptoms. That's pretty good. Um, In about 60% of treated patients compared with only about 35% in the control group. So two things from that. One, significant um, placebo effect, uh, which is interesting. Pretty much any time we look at anything that involves SSRIs or SNRIs, there's always a significant placebo effect. Um, but still, it did have a statistically greater benefit versus placebo uh, with Effexor. And you've, you'll see Effexor used for various other things like um, pain syndrome or um, and whatnot. But Panic disorder. Panic disorder. Um, so yeah, some of these SNRIs have some, some broad uses that I don't think they really anticipated when they first created these also the uc venlafaxine has some decent data with um vasomotor symptoms in patients who are, who are having dealing with menopause okay like, so it's like prestique yeah well, that one is with venlafaxine specifically not just venlafaxine right but the um i guess this i but think similar i guess similar idea yeah and i think they have some data with um prestique as well yeah but um the in with venlafaxine specifically if a patient has a contraindication to being on like estrogen or mm-hmm. some hormone, um, then you can give the, that a shot. And it's been shown to decrease those vasomotor symptoms. So interesting. Yeah. Um, so the other option obviously would be um, a oral contraceptive. And that's one of the pa- things that patients wanting and needing. Um, FDA approved option would be uh, Yaz. So ethanol estradiol and drospirinone. Um, that's been uh, approved in premenstrual symptoms uh, in women with PMDD. Um, and then also there, another one that's been studied is the uh, amethyst, which is just 20 micrograms of ethanol estradiol and 90 micrograms of levonorgestrel. Um, this study, one of the studies showed um, that it helped kind of improve symptoms in 30 to 59 uh, percent or the 30 to 59 percent improvement in those symptoms you know, patient reported kind of thing. So those are some options as well. So there's, there's several things you can kind of go with. It's going to have to be patient specific based on what their, you know, desires are and what their, you know, what fits their, you know, plans. And there's a broad range of symptoms too. So I'm sure it's based on what type of symptoms they're having. Absolutely. Um, the only other thing is uh, something we mentioned previously with PCOS, but luprolide, um, which is a Lupron Depot injection, is a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist. So this would be definitely considered a last-line option in someone with severe PMDD because um, it's very expensive, as are most injections. Um, but it uh, can improve premenstrual emotional symptoms and physical symptoms like bloating and breast tenderness. Um but there are adverse effects to be aware of, like vaginal dryness, hot flashes, um, and bone demineralization. So not ideal. But like I said, expensive, um, and it has to be injected, which um, not everybody likes. Yeah, and we typically, would, like Cole said, would save that for when all the other treatment options have been unsuccessful. Yeah. So at least we have something to, to fall back on. Absolutely. 
Anything else with this stuff? I'm just going to exhale because we survived two podcasts on, um, on, uh, women's health. And if we did mess anything up horribly, please send us us an email so we can put it at a rebuttal. Just don't, not a rebuttal, a retraction, excuse me, not a rebuttal. Don't make us redo it, but we'll, we'll pick some more specific things, um, like infertility or something like that. And we can definitely make an episode or even a short out of that. Endometriosis. Endometriosis. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. Lots of things. So we got a lot more topics coming up and we'll try to bring in um, you know, some female experts too, so that it's not just two dudes yeah. talking about women's health. Two dudes talking about women's health. That's what you got here. So we'll um, bring in some actual experts, but uh, yeah, we'll plan on that. So if you guys have any questions, comments, please feel free to reach out to us over email. Um, you can send me a text at 415-943-6116 um, or reach out to us on any of the social media platforms. Be happy to talk to you and hear your thoughts on the last couple episodes. Um, um, if you have any ideas for the show, definitely reach out to us. And then uh, thank you guys so much for those of you who have subscribed to the Patreon account that has like the more traditional lecture style um, videos on there and the slide sets and all that. Definitely appreciate that. And, um, you know, anything else we can do to improve that, we're all ears as well. So uh, thank you guys ultimately for uh, keeping with us all this time and following us. And we greatly appreciate it. And we will see you next time. Later.